you have your Bibles, I'd like you to take them and open them up uh, to Matthew chapter 3. And while you're doing that, I just want to welcome our congregation at 95th, your very first weekend to worship and celebrate together, as well as baptize some folks there. And I'm happy for you and excited. Had a chance to go visit the new facility, and I was I was a little envious and jealous. It is just a beautiful setting. So it's great to be one church in Christ together. I don't know if you have been reading the newspaper or not lately. Of course, a lot of times now people read the newspaper online. But uh, if you're still kind of old-fashioned and still take the paper and read through it, you'll notice that there's just a, a lot of bad news in the news, isn't there? I mean, politically, there's bad news no matter what uh, side of the aisle you uh, tend to vote. Economically, well, more bad news seems to pop up every week. Morally and culturally, if you look at the newspaper, it just uh, is discouraging to see how we're falling here in our nation and what's going on in the media, morally speaking. I saw a little article the other day about uh, Madonna's daughter, who seems to be taking up where her mother left off or is still going. Uh, you can also look and see that things are really tense in the Eurozone, with, uh, with it pretty much in a crisis economically and people not sure what's going to happen there. In addition to that, you've got the, the Middle East and what's taking place in... Oh, by the way, it says that Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes are ending their five-year marriage. Things are really getting bad. Uh, anyway, uh, we also hear about what's going on in the Middle East at a boiling point. And you don't want to miss my friend. Uh, his actual little name is Cotter Muscovy, who will be here uh, next weekend to uh, share uh, briefly in the service time, but specifically at 2 o'clock. I'm going to talk to him, interview him. We're going to comment on what's taking place in the Middle East. And then environmentally, what on earth is going on? I mean, this whole summer's kind of crazy. Winter was crazy with the heat wave that we've got going on right now. And, you know, you just keep hearing about earthquakes that are taking place all over the world. What's a person supposed to think? What are we supposed to do? Well, I want to I ask you to remember five words, all right? Five important words. Very simply, keep your eyes on Jesus. Can you say that with me? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't look to man for the answers. Don't look to man's systems for the answers. But despite whatever is going on right now, keep your eyes on Christ. And five more words. Can you handle five more words? All right. Simply this. Make the Bible your compass. Let's try that together. Ready? Make the Bible your compass. I heard some kids here at uh, our campus this weekend say that. It was good to hear that. Uh, I had a chance to put my uh, grandson to bed uh, uh, recently at uh, his home, and he likes to sing, which is kind of scary for grandpa to sing with grandson. And uh, I thought, okay, what are the kids' songs I know? And I started with the B-I-B-L-E. And man, he just, he knew that song and took right off. And I thought to myself, that's what I want for my grandchildren is that the word of God would become like the name of our, our church, that it would become their compass to guide and direct them. 
So despite whatever is taking place right now, let's keep our eyes on Jesus and let's make the word of God our compass. That is going to see us through these difficult times. These difficult times. But I want you to know that it's not like times have just suddenly become so difficult. Long ago, times were hard and difficult. Long ago, in the place that we know of as Israel, in Matthew chapter 3, things were difficult, hard. Rome was in charge, so things politically for the Jews were, were harsh and Economically, people were either getting really rich, there was no middle class, or you were just very poor and even getting more poor. Morally, they had issues back then. Not only the Gentiles, but the Jews. We read about New Testament issues of adultery and prostitution and thievery and so on and so forth, the kinds of things that we deal with today. Maybe not on the technical scale like we deal with today, but they had their problems back then too. And then, well, they lived in the Middle East. And if you think that the problems in the Middle East are just recent, well, there were some big issues going on back then. Lots of tension right in Israel, right in Jerusalem itself. And then, uh, ecologically, things were tough. There were earthquakes, there were famines, there was pestilence. There were a lot of issues that they were wrestling with in their own environment as well as the things we're wrestling with today. And they too wondered, what shall we do? What, what are we to make out of this? Is this what life is all about? No wonder the people came streaming like ants at a picnic to see this man who had come out from the desert, who invented Burberry. Because he wore clothes that were woven out of raw camel's hair. Can you imagine that? And he had a leather belt wrapped around his waist. And he was totally organic and into natural foods. He ate locusts and wild honey. We know him as John. John the Baptist, not because he was of the Baptist faith but because he baptized people. And men and women and families and kids and young adults, they all came streaming into the Jordan Valley down where it meets the Dead Sea. They all flocked around him. And the question is, why? What was it about John that they wanted to see? And what was it about him they wanted to hear? He sounded like he seemed like a prophet from the Old Testament. Was this Elijah? Was this the Messiah? Who was this? What was his great message? Matthew chapter 3 makes it pretty clear what that great message was that he was preaching to the people. If you look at it, in verse 2 he said that he was preaching that the kingdom of heaven was near. That the kingdom of heaven, or you can also substitute the word God, the kingdom of God was near. And that was good news for people who were struggling politically, who were struggling economically, who were struggling culturally, who were struggling with uh, the environment, who were struggling even with religion itself. The fact that the kingdom of God was near was exciting news to them. Things were going to change. They wanted the Messiah to come and kick the Romans out and reestablish Israel and Jerusalem. These were good things that John was talking about. 
But not everybody was excited about it. No, there was the religious elite, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who liked to look down the long slope of their nose at John the Baptist. They weren't quite sure what to make out of this character and his message. Was he a prophet? You know, was he the Messiah? Who was he? What did he think he was talking about? And they had real issues with him because he kept talking about the kingdom of heaven. He kept talking about the future. He kept talking about repentance or change. And that really bothered them because, you see, they had everything under control. They didn't need a spiritual savior. They needed somebody to get the Romans out, and yet some of them didn't mind the Romans being there, especially the Sadducees. They were in bed with the Romans, so to speak. They had a great system worked out. They just wanted to kind of keep the people under control. And John was a rabble-rouser with his message. Their Savior was the law, and they were the interpreters of the law. If the people would just listen to them and do as they said, though most people couldn't, then everything would be okay. And John knew what they were thinking about, and John never minced words. Look what he says in verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes! That wasn't very nice, was it? Can you imagine me showing up on a weekend and greeting you as a brood of snakes? Uh, He exclaimed, Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe or we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. They didn't like that. They did not like that at all. But the crowds loved it. They loved this fresh, new, authoritative voice. What must they do to enter into the kingdom? John made it really simple and really clear in verse 2. He said, repent of your sins and turn to God. That's what repentance means. It means to turn away from our sinfulness, turn away from trusting ourselves, and turn ourselves towards God and follow God. And the way that they demonstrated that they were turning away from their sinfulness, that they were embracing God and they were embracing God's new message for them was to enter into the muddy Jordan River where I have stood many times baptizing some of you who've gone with me to Israel. Stood there, they would enter there into the Jordan River and John would baptize them, more than likely taking them and plunging them into the water and bringing them back out. And as that water dripped off of them, as they walked out the banks of the Jordan River and perhaps up to the other side or back to their families and their friends, it was a sign of washing away of sin. It was a symbol of, I've, yeah, I'm walking away from my sinful life and I am going to follow I am going to follow this faith. I am going to follow God's plan. I'm going to walk into God's kingdom. And then it happened. He showed up. Jesus, the Messiah, the one whom John came in front of as a messenger to say, make a path, clear the way. I'm announcing the fact that 
Amashiach, the Messiah, has come. The anointed one, the Christ has come. The one who is going to save Israel and the world. He's come. And there he came. Down the banks of the Jordan River. And he stepped into the water. And John got upset. And John looked at him, and you got to imagine the whole crowd is watching. And John says, I'm not going to baptize you. No way am I, a sinful man, going to baptize you, the Son of God, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Anointed One. But listen to what happens in the discussion. Verse 13, then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, and this is a bit of a gobsmack here. You know, our series, Gobsmack, Surprise, Astonish, that British term. John was stunned, surprised, astonished. Why do you want me to baptize you? And Jesus' response to him is stunning, it's astounding, it's surprising. He says, it should be done, for we must carry out All that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? Was he sinful? No. Then why did he have to be baptized? Because it was a symbol of his impending crucifixion on the cross. Where he would take on the sins, the muck and the mire of our sinful lives, our shame and our guilt. He would take that on himself and he would die our death for us. He sacrificed for our sins. Isn't that awesome? And I love what it says here. Listen to what it goes on. It says, after, verse 16, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water... I hope there's a DVD, Blu-ray of this in heaven. The heavens were opened. I don't know exactly what that means. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly beloved Son who brings me great joy. How did Jesus bring his Father joy. Well, first of all, by being obedient to the Father's will. But if you look over in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, around verse 2 or so, it says that for the joy set before him, for the joy that awaited him, Jesus endured the cross. Oh my goodness. How many of you get joyful when you're going to suffer? I don't. So why was Jesus, why, why was there joy in embracing the cross? The joy was receiving you and me as his trophy. Can you imagine that? Like that is your trophy. You go to the cross and you get Dale. (laughs) Woohoo! You go to the cross and you get Julie. You go to the cross and fill your name in. That's your prize. And Jesus said, for the joy... Of you, I'll go to the cross. And if you'd been the only one that would, that would take him, that would accept him, he would have gone to the cross. Isn't that just wild? You know, our God is wild. You know that, right? In the most, in the most holy way of using the word wild. He's not a tame God. He's not a God in a cage. God in a box. He's a wild God. 
does the wildest things because he loves us. And so he goes to the cross and he dies for our sins. And everybody thinks that it's over. But three days later, what does he do? He rises again. And he empowers his followers, the Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts. And when you flip over to the book of Acts, you have this scene where Peter preaches this amazing sermon to the people who are listening. Because Christ has now fulfilled the Old Testament law that pointed to the fact that none of us can be saved by being perfect. That one who is perfect must die for us. And Peter preaches and says, the perfect one came, God's son, and he died for our sins. And we must now repent like these people did here in the Gospel of John and turn away from our sins and embrace what Christ has done for us and receive him into our lives. And it says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It says, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. Can you imagine that? More than a half an hour. I can't believe it. How did people sit still? All right. Strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Love verse 41. Those who believed. All right. So those who received Christ, who believed this message and took Christ in. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Can you imagine sitting here at 95th and watching 3,000 people go through that tank? We'd be here a while. And it happened in front of everybody. 3,000 people were baptized that day. It was holy chaos. There was no producer in charge. There was no worship leader. There was nobody standing in the back with t-shirts. Nobody was ready for it. Who wants to receive Christ? 3,000 hands go up. All right, if you've truly repented of your sins and received him, come on down and let's baptize you. And it may have happened there in the pools at the portico of Solomon, there in the temple. Oh, my goodness, people. You can imagine the Pharisees, Sadducees having a fit. What are you going to do with 3,000 people being baptized? And joining the way, the only way, the truth, and the life. Isn't that awesome? So every time somebody gets baptized, you and I join the ranks of those first believers in announcing to our friends and declaring to God, you weren't ashamed of me. You sent your son to die for me. I receive him. I'm turning from my sins. And I am making a public declaration that as this water washes over me, as I'm, as I'm put under and brought out, I have died with Christ and I have now risen with him in newness of life. That is so awesome and powerful. Let me just close with one more passage found over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. It says, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. And that's what baptism is. It's the symbol of, yes, my sins have died. I've been buried with Christ. Foo, I come out of that water, washing it all off me symbolically. And I now have the resurrection power of Christ in me. And when I die someday in this world, when my body finally gives up, my spirit will be released 
And I will join the saints in heaven for all eternity. Isn't that awesome? I know there's a lot of bad news out there, but that's, that's a lot of good news, isn't it? And God's got a physical kingdom coming someday, and he's going to establish his rule and reign. But right now, God says, I want to establish my kingdom in your heart. Is this kingdom, is this kingdom and rule and reign established in your heart right now? If not, why not? Why not? Surrender yourself to him. Maybe you're sitting here this weekend and you're thinking to yourself, ah, wish I had been baptized. Wish I had been baptized. You know, I was sprinkled when I was an infant. And I, with all due respect, you know, for infant baptism, as it's called in some religions, I, I see it as a dedication. Baptism happens after you hear the message and get saved. That's why I didn't get baptized till I was an adult. So nothing against the fact that you were sprinkled. That meant a lot to your family. It was kind of a, a covenant with God to pray for you. But you know what? You need, to, you need to now demonstrate that. Consciously know what you're doing and be baptized. You know, I'm, I'm contemplating just saying, hey, has anybody decided that, hey, what? I shouldn't have been holding back. I should have been baptized. And just bring you up here in your jeans or your shorts or whatever and just let you go home soaking wet. You'd never forget this weekend, would you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for yourself. Thank you for baptism. What a privilege, what an honor it is for us to identify with you and what you've done for us. As we continue to worship you, be glorified and honored. Thank you for those who, who so courageously allowed themselves, Lord, to be placed in the water and brought back out to say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.